I'm Josh Klein. And I'm Elise Hugh. We host a podcast from Accenture called Built for Change. Every part of every business is being reinvented right now. That means companies are facing brand new pressures to use fast evolving technologies and address shifting consumer expectations. But with big changes come even bigger opportunities. We've talked with leaders from every corner of the business world to learn how they're harnessing change to totally reinvent their companies. And how you can do it too. Subscribe to Built for Change now so you don't miss an episode. Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My approach is simple. To get real answers, you got to ask a lot of questions. Now, I'm going to ask you some. Help us understand how you listen to this show and others by filling out a survey at nytimes.com slash sway survey. And now to the show. data tends to get a bad rap, and it often deserves it. From Facebook's tools being used to abuse privacy, to Amazon knowing everything you buy, to apps tracking all of your movements, it's a data minefield for consumers these days. But in the hands of the right person, big data can actually be a force for good, or at least, one hopes, a force for good policy. And Raj Chetty is trying to do just that. He's the head of Harvard-based Opportunity Insights, a research institute that's working to solve America's inequality problem, one data set at a time. Chetty has been tracking millions of people over dozens of years in tens of thousands of American neighborhoods. In the process, he's learned that the country could be losing out on millions of inventors and that a move of just two miles might alter the trajectory of a third grader. But Chetty's research isn't just sitting in long Excel sheets or on dusty shelves. It's helping drive how Bill Gates spends his billions of dollars of philanthropy or how President-elect Joe Biden crafts his pandemic economic recovery plan. But one thing Chetty does best with all his piles of facts and figures is to make it easy for even the non-geek to grok. And there's an explosive term for that. You do things that apparently called Chetty Bombs. I'm not sure you love that name. Do you like that? Do you mind? I guess. I guess, yeah. Right. <laughs> there are unique insights where you can visually see something to, to do a visualization of what's happening. And I think some of the ones that I thought were much more effective was around COVID, which is where spending is happening or not happening. So talk a little bit about what you're doing around COVID. So in COVID, we're using data from a bunch of different private companies to track what's happening to various key outcomes, spending, employment levels, business activity, and so forth. And in a nutshell, what we basically find happened in the past six months is that high-income folks started to spend a lot less, like 30% less, billions of dollars less per day, primarily because of health concerns. So lots of high-income folks have the capacity to work remotely to self-isolate. And as a result, they started to basically go outside their houses less and spent much less on in-person services, local restaurants, shops, and so forth. 
those businesses, particularly small businesses then, lost an enormous amount of revenue. And in particular, businesses located in affluent areas. So think about, for example, the Upper East Side of Manhattan or the highest income places in San Francisco. They lost something like 70 or 80 percent of their revenue. So just a massive impact. Mm -hmm. In contrast, in some of the less affluent places, like if you think about the Bronx or parts of Queens, you see more like 20 or 30% declines in revenue, so much less than what you're seeing in, in the affluent places. And so then you've got all these businesses that have lost a ton of money. So what you can then do with these data is ask, okay, how do they balance their books? Like, what are you going to do when you have much less money? Well, naturally, you see that these businesses start to lay off lots of their workers. And in particular, they lay off they're low-wage workers. So if you look at some of these graphs, you can see very clearly this pattern where for low-income workers, people making less than, say, twenty dollars or $30,000 a year. Someone who works in a sandwich shop in a downtown area of San Francisco, for example. Exactly. 70-80% of those workers have lost their jobs, whereas that same worker, if they worked even at the same chain, say you're working at a Chipotle or something like that, and you happen to be working at a branch that was in a less affluent area, you were much less likely to lose your job just because spending happened to fall less in those areas, perhaps because essential workers are still out and about. They have to be outside their house because of the nature of their jobs, whereas high-income folks can typically self-isolate. And so what's ended up happening is basically because of this reduction in spending by the rich, it's lower-income people who've borne the incidence of that shock and losing their jobs. And what we're finding now is we've had essentially a V-shaped recovery for high-income folks where their employment levels are back to where they were pre-COVID, whereas for lower-income folks, you're still 20% below, like 6 million jobs below where you were. Right, where they've borne the brunt of the economic distress, which I think anecdotally people get, which is interesting. One of the things that someone was talking about, the statistics around the Trump voters, that wealthier people did vote for Trump. I'm like, well, they're doing okay, more than you think. And their income is the same. So they're not upset about this issue particularly. Yeah, that's right, Karen. I think what's more, though, is you can see it's not just lower income folks in general, but in very particular areas. Right. So in the past, in previous recessions, what you tend to see is that it's lower income folks in less affluent cities who took the hardest hit. Turns out in this recession, it's actually flipped. So Silicon Valley, for example, has some of the highest unemployment rates for low-income people. Got a lot of surfs there. Exactly, because it's, it's the opposite of what you might have thought because of the mechanism we just talked about. So this is one example of, I think, what you can see in these data. But importantly, as you touched upon, you can basically have folks see this for themselves by just plotting the data in a very simple way. Um, just finishing up on COVID, with the CARES Act, does the stimulus bill have an impact then? You have this data now that you're showing this. They still haven't passed one. Maybe that's a good thing because they didn't get to see this data yet and they were just sort of shooting in the dark, essentially. Is it going to be a wake-up call? Are they going to change their behaviors of where the money is going because seeing this data? How does that translate? Well, I mean, that's the aspiration. So what we're hoping going forward, and I've been talking with a bunch of folks in the president-elect and folks in the Biden team, I think there's a lot of interest, both among those folks and people on the other side of the aisle as well who have been speaking with, in trying to understand how we can do better in light of having these sorts of data. Because, you know, of course, there are always political debates about what we should focus on, but I don't think anyone is in favor of just spending lots of money in ineffective ways. So talk a little bit about that concept of understanding cause and effect, understanding yeah. result and yeah. action. Take in the context of the current crisis, the 
important paycheck protection program, about $500 billion of loans to small businesses to try to keep people on payroll and kind of in the context of COVID to try to keep kind of the economy going to stop businesses from laying people off. So the way that program was designed, lots of businesses were eligible, in particular businesses with fewer than 500 employees. And as you said, you know, there was kind of a hope that maybe giving these firms this money is going to keep lots of workers on the payroll and will make the, the recession not as bad. So what we did is using data from payroll companies, which are cutting paychecks for millions of workers, Mm -hmm. we basically compared trends in employment for firms that had fewer than 500 employees and hence were eligible for the Paycheck Protection Program versus firms that had more than 500 employees and hence were not eligible. So you can make an analogy there to sort of a science experiment. You've got a treatment group the firms that had fewer than 500 employees that got this extra assistance and the ones that have more than 500 employees serve as kind of a control group. They tell you what would have happened if you didn't get this assistance. If you did nothing. And so what you end up seeing in the data is you can follow employment levels week by week and you can see very precisely that after April 3rd, that when when this program went into effect, employment did start to go up a little bit at the smaller firms relative to the larger firms by about two percentage points. But the problem is... It's only a two percentage point impact. It costs a fortune for every employee. And it cost five hundred billion dollars. So it it cost about three hundred thousand dollars per job that we saved as a result. And some of these are low wage jobs, correct? And these are jobs that are paying about forty thousand dollars a year, typically. So you know you're spending an enormous amount of money to save these jobs. Now I think people started to figure out over time that lots of firms might be taking up this program who weren't going to lay off any workers anyway. And so as a result, it wasn't super cost effective. But we figured that out only several months afterward. And so the kind of vision we have in some of this big data work that we're doing, and this is why I think it can be a moral force, a force for social good, is imagine you could see as you're kind of steering the economy two, three weeks later, well, this is kind of working, but maybe we need to target it at firms that lost a lot of revenue or mm-hmm. redesign it a bit so that it's more effective. Or in specific geographies, like this area doesn't need any money. This area does. Exactly. Or specific sectors, right? There's certain sectors hit particularly hard. You can take a really data-driven approach. And in private companies, this would be second nature, right? I try to sell this product. I figure out within a couple of months, people are not clicking on this. They're not buying this. I'm going to then tweak it in some way. And I think we could do that from a social perspective for, for, for policy with, in my view, much larger stakes. Right. You had a breakthrough getting IRS data, which you seem to love IRS data, which is full of all kinds of data points. I can imagine it has so many signals. What is useful and what more do you need? And do you need like social media data? Yeah. And so then the way we are interested in social media data is is to look at social networks. So we have some work that we're doing now with social network data, trying to understand how people are connecting with each other. So a phenomenon that I've been interested in studying for some time and that has been discussed, for instance, in, in books by Bob Putnam, my colleague at Harvard, on the decline of social capital, is this notion that America is kind of coming apart, that we're not a very integrated society anymore, we're more and more disconnected by class and by race and so forth. And measuring that has proven to be quite challenging. We basically want to know who people's friends are and how those networks have changed over time, how they vary across So the setting. social glue you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. And so for me, 
social media data can be incredibly valuable for that. So one of the things is a lot of what's happened is a lot of people who are in tech are very interested in you and have given you money like Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Mike Bloomberg and others. Why do you think they're so interested in getting these answers? They're interested in the topics about income inequality or they just they are the data kings of this world, all three of them, Gates, Zuckerberg, Bloomberg. Yeah. So what I've found is the topic of equality of opportunity in particular, and I would distinguish this, Kara, from the topic of inequality, which I think can mean a different thing, is one that galvanizes interest from across the political spectrum, from people in different walks of life. I think the idea that your shot in life should not be preordained by the family you happen to be born into, by where you happen to grow up, that really resonates with everyone. And so I think folks like Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, a number of others who who support our group were very interested in that idea and naturally, given their background, wanted to approach it from a scientific perspective. Do you worry about the, the, the fact that data kings are funding you? Yeah, very uh, fair question. You know, so we are, as a research institute, I think the, probably the founding principle is that the funders have no say in the direction of the research or certainly the research findings. There's kind of a firewall between we are broadly supporting research on equality of opportunity, but we're not, you know, per se going to say use our data or focus on a certain set of topics or, or results. So we try to maintain quite a bit of independence in that way. You did a lot around race and around where people get opportunity and their equality fate. You could start to see where people moved and when they moved by using this old data, what had happened and the impact. So where I have been focused before COVID hit, and I think the broader focus of our research team is on long-term trends in inequality. So totally different time scale, like not it's happening last month versus this month, but more like what's happening across generations. So here we're talking. Right. It happened. Yeah, exactly. Let us tell you the story of what actually what, happened. What happened. And of course, then what does that mean for what's going to happen going forward? But on a time scale of decades where we're talking about our kids and what their prospects are going to be when they grow up. We're using information from anonymized tax and census records, where the key thing is we're able to link kids to parents and link them back to where they grew up. So a lot of the traditional discussion that you read about on inequality is a snapshot at a particular point in time. So it's saying, for example, that the top 1% has lots of money now relative to lower income folks, and that's growing over time and so forth. All of that is looking at snapshots over time. So what we're doing is trying to look at things from what social scientists would call a longitudinal perspective, tracking families and people over time and saying, let's take somebody who became really successful, you had a high level of income or became a prominent uh, inventor or scientist, entrepreneur, you know, whatever it might be. What were their origins? What kind of family did so they... So going back. Going rather, back in time. Let's trace them Using back, data. Using these data because we're able to use these tax and census records to literally map back, like where did their parents live? How much were their parents making? Where did they grow up? And so forth. And what you can do using now millions of data points, right, to, to get at systematic patterns. Let me mention a few things you see. So first, you see that kids' chances of rising up in the income distribution, achieving the American dream, if you like, vary greatly depending upon where they're growing up. So it turns out if you just look at a map of the U.S. and you kind of ask, what do rates of upward mobility look like across different parts of the U.S.? Places like Iowa or much of the center of the country, if you're born to a low-income family there, you have really good odds 
of rising up in the income distribution. If you look in contrast at a place like Charlotte, North Carolina, turns out if you're born to a low-income family, you basically you don't have great chances of making it to the upper class or, or, or even the middle class. And that Charlotte point was particularly shocking to us because Charlotte is one of the most rapidly growing cities in the U.S. So if you take the kind of snapshot view and you say, what are the average incomes of people in Charlotte or what does job growth look like? You would say, wow, Charlotte's a booming city. It's totally different now than it was 30 years ago. But what this longitudinal look is showing you is that growth has not benefited the lower income and middle income kids who were growing up in Charlotte. What has actually happened is Charlotte imported a lot of talent. That's one way to look at it. Bank workers or digital exactly. workers. Lots of people moved to get those high-paying jobs at Bank of America, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But those jobs didn't go to the people who were growing up in Charlotte to begin with. So, so it doesn't translate. Economic growth doesn't automatically translate to better opportunities for people in a given area, which is something you can only see with these with these new data. And so that simple fact then motivated, I think in a very constructive way, to your earlier question, you know, do people actually pay attention? Is there an impact of these kinds of data on policymakers? Well, we were very encouraged to see in Charlotte, local officials, the CEO of Bank of America, you know, lots of people were motivated to say, what can we do to actually invest in the local community and help people come up here? And I think there are a bunch of programs now in place to try to hire folks from the local community and so forth. Some of these places do have these things you are calling opportunity bargains, which are areas that do somehow, if you move there and you move there early enough, you can change the trajectory really significantly for someone who earns $17,000 to someone who earns thirty, which means they're a better taxpayer, which means they're more stable. Yeah, that's right. And so that opportunity bargain idea, then, you know, initially we were looking at these broad differences I was describing, mm-hmm. Iowa versus Charlotte. Then what we started to do is drill down and say, okay, within Charlotte, within New York, within Seattle, what do differences in kids' chances of rising up look like? And what we found is that it's not just about differences across states. It's not even about differences across cities. It's actually about differences across neighborhoods that are often just a couple miles apart. And you see totally different outcomes for kids growing up in low-income families there. And that was to me incredibly encouraging because it says you don't need to look to Sweden or some other country that we think of, you know, has much higher levels of economic mobility. You actually just need to look like two miles down the road in your own city. So talk about these opportunity bargains. Do they have things in common and do they have to have things in common? Yeah. So just to be clear on what the term opportunity bargain means, so it's it's these places that give kids really good chances of succeeding and are affordable, importantly. If I tell you that the most expensive neighborhood in New York, you know, if, if a kid happened to live there, they'd get great schools and do well, like that's one thing, but that's going to be totally infeasible in terms of replicating that. What was really striking to us is you can find lots of places that are opportunity bargains in the sense that they are equally affordable to where lots of low-income families are currently living, yet produce much better outcomes. And so then naturally, there are two questions one might ask. What is happening in those places? What's different about those places systematically such that we can then maybe try to replicate that in other areas? And second, is there a way that we can try to help families move to these opportunity bargain places? Like, why are they not moving there already? Can we implement government policies to try to reduce segregation and so forth? So on the On the first point, we've looked at lots of different factors that might predict these differences in opportunity across areas, and it is pretty systematic. You tend to find that places, not surprisingly, with better schools or less concentrated poverty 
more mixed income areas tend to have better outcomes for low-income kids. One important set of factors that I had not necessarily anticipated as an economist, but I'm increasingly convinced are quite important, are this idea of social cohesion, going back to the Putnam social capital sort of idea that it's about who you're connected to. I, I increasingly think based on many pieces of evidence that if you're around people who can connect you to opportunity, people who might be able to tell you about how to apply to college or essentially just change your aspirations. For many kids, you know, even going to college or aspiring to be a, a journalist or a scientist that just might not even be on the radar screen. I think that kind of influence seems extremely important. How do you use the data to talk about social capital? Because I remember spending a lot of time at College Track with Lorraine Powell Jobs is funding this idea. And one of the things they didn't anticipate was once they got to school, the pull of home, like they couldn't do internships. You know, there was worry about taking care of their family back at home. Like it was pulling them back. How were you able to determine that on a, in a data way, in a way that you can articulate that besides anecdotally? We looked at who becomes an inventor in America. And the way mm -hmm. we did that is by linking data on publicly available patent records. So you can get data on who had a patent in the U.S., which is a proxy for whether you invented something, of course. And we were able to link that internally to the tax data in the government to look at the lives of inventors. And we were able to track one million people who went on to become inventors in relation to their parental income, origins, and so forth. And what we found is a, a striking pattern, which is that kids who grew up in areas where there was more innovation going on to begin with were more likely to become inventors themselves. To give you a concrete example, imagine you've got two kids who are in Boston, say they're at MIT, uh, and say one grew up in Silicon Valley, which of course has a lot of computer innovation, and say the other grew up in Minneapolis, which you might not know, has a lot of medical device manufacturers. Turns out that the kid who grew up in Minneapolis is much more likely to have a patent in medical devices, even though they're in Boston now. And the kid who grew up in Silicon Valley is much more likely to have a patent in computers. Moreover, it turns out those effects are gender specific. So if women grew up in areas where there are lots of women innovating in a particular field, they're more likely to have a patent in that field. If there are more men innovating in that field, it has no impact at all. So all of this suggests to me that it's unlikely that Minneapolis has the kind of schools that prepare you to make medical devices, right? Mm -hmm. Like a much more likely explanation is you were influenced to think about a certain set of questions. Maybe you got an internship, certain set of connections, and that led you down a certain path. The gender specificity suggests that it's about who your mentors are. Do you see yourself following in their so if footsteps? you see it, you can be. Exactly. And so concept. that led us to think that this much more granular phenomenon of social connection and social capital is just as important, if not maybe even more important than literally what resources are available in your Which, school. of course, is hard to quantify, obviously. But I'm curious, if we move to all these opportunity bargain places, won't this just sharpen America's divide? Yeah, so I would argue it's actually not that obvious that you'll magnify the, the divides in America because a lot of these high opportunity places are not necessarily what you would have thought of initially. So some of the highest opportunity places in the U.S., as an example, are places like the center of the country, places like rural Iowa, for example. And it's not that rural Iowa is offering you great job opportunities per se right there. What we're seeing in the data is that the kids who grow up there then with these data, we're able to follow them as they move to Chicago, move to New York to get those high paying jobs, right? And so that same phenomenon plays out 
within cities, it turns out that there are lots of places like parts of Queens and New York, which are incredibly high opportunity. And so what we're trying to do is basically create more integration where you have more low-income families living in basically mixed-income neighborhoods, reduce the amount of segregation in American cities, and that seems like it will foster more upward mobility. Your statistics predominantly focus on children. Talk about why that is, and it, and at what age is a child's, I guess, equality fate, I think is what you call it, determined on average? In other words, how late is too late to cure inequality? Mm-hmm. So when thinking about long-term inequality, we very much focus on kids, When we think about the short run, you know, who's employed right now in the COVID crisis and so forth, of course, we're focusing on adults. Now, why do we focus on kids when we think about long-term inequality? Well, one of the key findings we found in this body of work is that people's later life trajectories are heavily shaped by their childhood experiences. And so to put an age on it, I would say if I had to pick a number, it's by the end of college, by age 22 or 23, something like that, the age at which many people, not everyone, but a large chunk of people would would typically graduate from college. And so on the question of is there a critical age or is there an age that really matters, we actually find that essentially all the ages from birth to something like your early 20s seem to matter roughly equally. If you move to a better neighborhood, a higher opportunity neighborhood, better schools, more mixed income, all the things we've been talking about. Every extra year you spend growing up in such an area, the higher your income levels look in adulthood, the more likely you are to go to college, the better the outcomes you have on a whole bunch of dimensions. So the way I think about it is it's kind of like a dosage effect. It to make a medical analogy, every extra dose you get of that better environment, the more it helps you. It's not like you just have to be there when you're five years old or seven years old. If you were in a good neighborhood until age seven, but then moved to a lower opportunity area, we actually see kids' outcomes get significantly worse. So it's just like it, it's a cumulative effect of what's happening in the first 20 years of your life. And so that suggests there is a lot of room to intervene because we can figure out what to do. How do you give kids access to better colleges? How do you improve things in teenagers? How do you think improve things in early childhood? It's both creates a lot of opportunities for improvement and shows it's a pretty complex set of things to tackle. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, hit subscribe. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Nobel laureate Jennifer Doudna, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Raj Chetty after this break. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in perspectives at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we teamed up with The New York Times 
to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are hand-picked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. So one of your bigger findings is around generational wealth. 50% of kids don't earn as much as their parents did. That was before the latest economic crisis. Should parents be worried? Yeah. So historically, the way people thought about the American dream is that this is a country where through hard work, anyone should have a chance of rising up. That's, I think, what brings a lot of immigrants to the U.S. What's the reason my parents came to this country? So if you look, one of the things we did is just try to figure out, like, does the U.S. live up to that aspiration? What fraction of kids actually go on to earn more than their parents did? Turns out, if you look at kids born in the middle of the last century, like born in 1940, 1950, it is actually true that America is a place that offers that sort of opportunity. 90% of kids born in the 1940s went on to earn more than their parents did. But if you look at kids who are entering the labor market today, who are around 30 years old today, only 50% of them are earning more than their parents did. It's become a coin flip as to whether you're going to achieve the American dream. And that broad trend, you might think of it as the fading American dream. It's a fundamental economic significance. It animates a lot of the research that we are doing in our team. As you were noting, I think it's also fundamental political and social significance, because I think it's that very trend that underlies a lot of the frustration that people are expressing. The U.S. is no longer a land where it's easy to get ahead. The key thing is that for people at the bottom and the middle of the income distribution, you basically have no growth in in wages over the past 30, 40 years. And I think figuring out why that is and how you address that is the core challenge in reviving the American dream. Can you measure the American dream and what it takes to be an innovator? I absolutely think that you can, as we've been talking about, you know, distill to clear statistics what exactly is happening to opportunity in America, like this 50% doing better than their parents and so forth. But you can also drill down, I think, in other specific ways. So this term, lost Einsteins, relates to the study we were talking about a bit earlier, which I had discussed in the context of the importance of social capital, the inventors, and who goes on to become an inventor. So people who reach the top 1%, presumably they had to have some talents to get there. They transmit that genetically to their kids. Does that explain some of what's going on? What we did was we were able to then link in data on test scores for these kids when they were in third grade and look at math test scores. Now, it turns out math test scores in third grade are highly predictive of whether you go on to become an inventor. But here's the striking thing, Kara. Kids who have high math test scores in third grade are much more likely to become inventors, but only if they're from high-income families. And so what that shows you is it's not about talent per se. It's largely about opportunity. You see a very similar pattern by race and ethnicity. Black kids who are scoring at the top of their class in third grade have essentially very low chances of going on to become scientists and inventors, even though they're doing just as as well at that point. And so what we did is tried to quantify how many of these lost Einsteins are there, kids who have the talent 
to go on to do great things and become mentors who could benefit all of us, but are not coming through the pipeline because of a lack of opportunity in the U.S. And we estimated that we would have four times as many inventors in America as we currently do if low-income kids, kids from underrepresented racial and ethnic backgrounds, so Black kids and Hispanic kids and women were as likely to become inventors as high-income white men with the same early childhood test scores. So so we're, we're losing a huge amount of talent. A hundred percent. If you could use data to prove that white rich guys aren't the only ones that can make things, I would buy you an ice cream sundae. Use data <laughs> just so I could hand it to them. That's the idea of this idea of American dream built on meritocracy in a sense that we deserve our outcomes. And everyone I know in Silicon Valley thinks they made it themselves. My view is that, of course, people had to do hard work on their own to get to where they are. But they did that within a framework of opportunity that made those possibilities achievable for them, right? So I'll just give you my own personal experience, which I think speaks to this. So I have many cousins who actually have the same name as me, also called Raj. And they all grew up in different places, different families. And this goes back one generation in my family where in poorer families in developing countries like India, you typically picked one child to educate in your family because you couldn't educate everyone. And it so happened that my mom and dad were in their respective families, the ones chosen to get higher education. And I have seen very clearly how that has completely defined the opportunities that I've had relative to my cousins. I'm absolutely sure there's no way I'd be talking to you today if I hadn't happened to be given the, the opportunities afforded by my parents, getting that education, coming to the United States, and so forth. My experience, at least in talking with some folks who are entrepreneurs and so forth, is some recognition that they were lucky in terms of the draw they got, where they got to go to a good school. I've had a conversation recently with Bill Gates, you know, very much along these lines that happened to get a chance to go to a good school, had a family that was very focused well, on he was rich. Just education, like, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, a recognition that if you didn't, if you hadn't had those advantages growing up, you might have been just as, as talented and as hardworking as you are, but probably wouldn't end up where you ended up. So I do think there's no doubt that effort and merit matter and people deserve credit for for what they've achieved. But the idea that one has done everything without any public support, that it's entirely your own doing, I, I just think in the data from my personal experience, I do not think that that's correct. Yeah, that's the born on third base, think you hit a home run theory of social science. That's mine, I'm just in case you're interested. I'm not a professor. So what are those policies and investments that the government needs to make? Is it higher taxes, less reliance on property taxes, more funding of people's ideas? How do you quantify which one works? Yeah, I, here I think there's no other answer than systematically trying to understand program by program which things are working and which things are not. I think for too long in social science and in policymaking, we have looked to broad brush kind of answers, which are we need to raise taxes and we need to broadly fund schools more. And of course, like total dollars matter. If you have no resources, you can't fund anything. But what we've started to learn over time is that the details of how programs are implemented, the exact end line kind of service delivery matters a ton. So I want to give you one specific example of that. Let's go back to the moving to opportunity work that we were talking about. So we spend about $45 billion a year in the U.S. on affordable housing programs, which are intended exactly to give families access to higher opportunity areas. Now, it turns out when you look at the data, 80% of the families getting 
this sort of assistance, for example, housing vouchers from the government that give you rental assistance to rent in, in uh, any neighborhood you like, 80% of families are using those vouchers to still live in what are pretty low opportunity areas. They don't actually move to the higher opportunity places. So, okay, so let's dig in. This is the study we did in Seattle. We asked, why is that? Is it that families are not moving to higher opportunity places because they have preferences not to do so. Maybe they want to stay close to family, close to their jobs. There are other good reasons they don't want to move to these places where we can see in the data their kids would do much better. Or is it that there are other barriers? Landlords maybe don't want to rent to them. They have a hard time finding housing in these other neighborhoods. There are issues with the credit history and so forth. And so what we did is essentially a small tweak to the existing housing voucher program. We ran a randomized pilot where for half of the families that came in when they applied for a housing voucher, we said, we're going to give you a little bit of assistance in finding housing in a high opportunity area if you want to, totally your choice. And that's basically going to be sort of like a a counselor or brokerage service that's going to help you navigate the search process, identify some places, some landlords who might want to rent. So smooth out the possible obstacles. Smooth it out a bit. Okay. It basically cost $2,000 a family, which is not a small sum, but relative to the $100,000 we end up spending per housing voucher, right? Paying for people's rent over many years. It's only a 2% incremental cost. Well, it turns out that that small intervention increases the fraction of families that move to high opportunity areas from 15% to 60%. So you dramatically... Where you want them to move. You get them to move by removing friction. Exactly. And so what that illustrates is that it's the same program. We're just kind of changing it on the margins, but it has a fundamentally different effectiveness when we design it in a little better way uh, to address these sorts of frictions. And so now... There's bipartisan support in Congress for expanding this sort of approach. There's been a bill to do this kind of pilot in many other cities across the U.S., and there's discussion of expanding this program significantly. To me, it illustrates a much broader lesson, which is the debate is not just about how many dollars we should spend on affordable housing. That is, of course, a controversial political debate. But my view is there's a lot to be gained by using good data and science to figure out how you actually spend the $45 billion we already have in a much more effective way to tackle the problems we're seeking to solve. So you're famously non-political. Why is that? Yeah, for me, Kara, you know, the way I approach these problems is just try to view it as a scientific question. The way I start the class I teach to graduate students at Harvard is it's a class in public economics, economic policy. And I say, look, the the approach we're going to take here is take what you might think of as political questions. Did Obamacare cost the U.S. economy or help uh, lots of people? Well, that's obviously an incredibly politically fraught question. But when you really think about it, it's a scientific question. Did Obamacare, you know, there were claims that it reduced the number of jobs substantially or reduced employment levels? Well, did it or not? There's only a yes or no answer. It's It's a matter of can we figure out the right way methodologically with the data to figure out what the answer to that question is? At the end of the day, that is, to me, a scientific question. Politics will still always play a role in terms of what people want to put weight on. But it seems to me that there are lots of questions that are purely scientific questions that have become political questions because of a lack of clear answers. And that is a place where I think social scientists like myself can do more to contribute. And I think in order to contribute successfully, I would like to do so in a way where I'm not just coming at it 
from a particular political angle. That said, some scientists have run into some buzzsaws lately, the COVID scientists, when they're saying very clear, factual things that these numbers correlate. Do you worry about that buzzsaw? I mean, I don't think I'm immune from that. I I still view it as my job to anybody who's interested in listening. I'm happy to share what I think the data have to say and to present the data in a way that is transparent so people can judge for themselves. Like, do you think, you know, low-wage employment has fallen more than high-wage employment? Well, you can look at it for yourself. And if you want to make a different judgment call, you know, that that's uh, that's fine. Now, are we criticized sometimes by people on with a different political view? Absolutely, right? It's not that I think everyone accepts the interpretation of our findings. But I would say there are times that people on the left have been critical of some of our findings. There are times that people on the right have been critical of our findings. Well, that's a good place to be then. One of the things that you're uncovering is that we want to get this upward movement trajectory of income. A lot of people talk about that as a quality of opportunity versus, say, a wealth distribution. There's been a demonization of socialism, the idea of of helping people. And in Silicon Valley, they talk about compassionate capitalism so much. If you look at all these ideas of giving money or things like that, what do you think is the trend towards a more equitable society that does it in the most efficient way and the way the data points to? So I would draw a fundamental distinction between equality of opportunity and equality of outcomes. So what do I mean by that? Equality of opportunity, think of it as like a race. We all start at the same line, right? Uh, equality of outcomes, do we all kind of finish the race at the same time in the same place? My sense of America is it's a place where everyone believes in equality of opportunity. We should all have, we have the aspiration of starting at the same point. But whether we end up with different outcomes, well, different people have different views on that. And I think you can reasonably have different views, you know is it okay if you started a very successful business to keep a lot of the money? Maybe that's fine. On the other hand, should you have a thousand times as much wealth as somebody else who's struggling to put food on the table for their kids? Like maybe we think that's not a good idea. Where we've been focused is on the equality of opportunity aspect because the I beginning, think- The beginning, the race. The beginning. If, you, if you're not even starting out at the same place, that's a big problem. And I think if we can figure out how to at least get people starting somewhere around the same place, we will make strides on the outcomes front as well. And so to me, in a way, that feels like the lower hanging fruit and the place to start. Now, that is still a very tough thing to accomplish, no doubt. Because of education or... Education. I mean, race is obviously a big Mm -hmm. issue where we have documented enormous differences by race in kids' chances of of rising up that are totally independent of the various other factors that we've talked about. And so, of course, there's been a long struggle to achieve opportunity on those dimensions in the U.S., but my hope is with these new data sources, we can really make clear to the American public where opportunity is still lacking and be precise about how we can make those changes. And hopefully that's then going to motivate political change that will lead to better opportunities for all. Last question, is Biden offered you a job yet? Uh, Would you take it? I, I mean, I feel like coming back to your very oh, first wait, question. Did he I'm offer having, you one yet? Uh, not not directly yet. Nice use of an adverb there, Raj Chetty. I think my view is I'm hoping this work will continue to have an influence and I'm eager to, to have an influence, hopefully in a positive direction in, in the economic recovery. So I'll be closely talking with folks uh, going forward, but no immediate plans for me and terms of trying to do something. So you are political. Look at that. That was the most political answer I've ever heard. Which one would you want if you could just have any of them? Uh, Which position? Yeah. yeah. I I honestly think, Kara, at the moment, I'm very happy just 
that folks in a lot of these different positions are consulting our team in terms of thinking about what to do. But, you know, who knows? I'll let you off the hook. Don't worry about it. I'll I'll be enjoying a coffee with you in Washington soon. Anyway, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Hiba Elorbani, Matt Kwong, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Paula Schumann, with music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Renan Borelli, Liriel Higa, and Kathy Tu. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. So subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you like a swisher bomb, boom! Download a podcast app like Stitcher or Google Podcasts, then search for Sway and hit subscribe. You'll get episodes every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Speaking of piles of data, we want to know what you think about the show. You can give us feedback by filling out a long survey at nytimes.com slash Survey. Once again, that's nytimes slash Sway Survey. Thanks a lot, and we really mean it. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.